0: readings this morning from the Bible. One Robert is going to bring to us as he brings the word to us this morning, and the other one I'm going to read to you now. This is from the Gospel of John, and it's chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. So John chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. As he went along, as Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said this, he spat on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. That means scent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing.
1: Yes. We're in Acts chapter 12. About this time, King Herod began to persecute some members of the church. He had James, the brother of John, put to death by the sword. And when he saw that this pleased the Jews, he went on to arrest Peter. And this happened during the time of the festival of unleavened bread. And after his arrest, Peter was put in jail, where he was handed over to be guarded by four groups of four soldiers. Herod planned to put him on trial in public after the Passover. And so Peter was kept in jail. But the people of the church were praying earnestly to God for him. The night before, Herod was going to bring him out to the people. Peter was sleeping between two guards. He was tied with two chains. And there were guards on duty at the prison gate. Suddenly, An angel of the Lord stood there and a light shone in the cell. And the angel shook Peter by the shoulder and woke him up and said, hurry, get up. And at once the chains fell off Peter's hands. And then the angel said, fasten your belt and put on your sandals. And Peter did so. And the angel said, put your cloak around you and come with me. And Peter followed him out of the prison, not knowing, however, if what the angel was doing was real. He thought he might be seeing a vision. And they passed by the first guard post, and then the second, and came at last to the iron gate, leading into the city. And the gate opened for them, all by itself, and they went out. And they walked down a street and suddenly the angel left Peter. And then Peter realized that what had happened to him and said, Now I know that it is really true. The Lord sent his angel to rescue me from Herod's power. And from everything the Jewish people expected to happen. Aware of his situation, he went to the home of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. And Peter knocked at the outside door, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer it. And she recognized Peter's voice, and was so happy that she ran back in without opening the door and announced that Peter was standing outside. You are mad, they told her, but she insisted that it was true. And so they answered, it is his angel. Meanwhile, Peter kept on knocking. And at last, they opened the door, and when they saw him, they were amazed. He motioned with his hand to them for them to be quiet, and he explained to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell this to James and the rest of the believers, he said. Then he left and went somewhere else. And when morning came, there was a tremendous confusion among the guards. What had happened to Peter? And Herod gave orders to search for him, but they couldn't find him. And so he had the guards questioned and ordered them to be put to death. And after this, Herod left Judea and went and spent some time in Caesarea. Right. It's a story that many of us will be familiar with. But we've got to look at the politics, first of all. Because I like staring at politics, even when it's first century politics. So King Herod the Great was the first king of the Jews. He was appointed by the Romans. There's his ugly mug and it's about the only copy of his ugly mug that we have. (laughs) He ruled in Judea between 37 BC and 4 BC. And his two outstanding achievements had been the rebuilding and the enhancing of the temple at Jerusalem. That's a model, that's not the real thing. They knocked it down before we got cameras out. (laughs) And the murder of the children of Bethlehem was the other achievement in 6 BC. In his efforts to stamp out his perceived rival, Jesus of Nazareth. He died in 4 BC. Of what modern doctors believe was a chronic kidney disease, the details of which I would rather not discuss here on a Sunday morning. (laughs) This disease had meant that without modern anesthetics, he must have died in great agony, which many at the time and a fair few since believed was richly deserved. Augustus Caesar, the emperor at Rome at the time, followed Herod's will to the letter. And he divided his kingdom between Herod's three surviving sons. He killed off all the others, including Herod Agrippa's father. Herod Antipas had become the tetrarch of Galilee and Perea. That's shown on the map in blue. Philip had become the tetrarch of ituria and Trachonitis. Which sounds like a bad disease of the throat, really, doesn't it? And that's in brown. And Herod Archelaus became the ethnarch of Judea and Samaria in white. Archelaus died in 6 AD. And he was replaced by a succession of Roman prefects, or governors, ending with the notorious Pontius Pilate, who was appointed as prefect in 26 AD. Tiberius Caesar became the Roman emperor in 14 AD, when his adoptive father, Augustus Caesar, had died. And then, after a reign of 23 years, he also died, because they tend to do that, in 37 AD. That was about seven years after the crucifixion of Jesus. Then came Gaius, the son of Germanicus, who was more commonly known as Caligula. He was appointed as emperor in in the place of his father, Germanicus, who had been appointed as Tiberius' successor, but had failed to live long enough to take on the role. And so Caligula, his son, inherited this position instead. Now, Herod Agrippa I was the grandson of Herod the Great. But he shouldn't be confused with his son, Herod Agrippa II, who Paul appeared before later in the book of Acts, in chapters 25 and 26. And it just so happened that Herod Agrippa was best mate with Caligula. And so it became an easy job for him to persuade his mate... Caligula to recombine the territories of Judea and appoint him as the new King Herod of the Jews. And the early records tell us that Herod Agrippa was an enthusiastic supporter of Judaism. And like his best friend, Caligula, he was also famed for his brutality. So when Agrippa came to power in Jerusalem, He began his own brutal persecution of the early Christians, and the Jewish hierarchy loved it. Our story begins in 44 AD, during that persecution, when both James, the son of Zebedee, and later Simon Peter, were imprisoned as part of Agrippa's persecution of the church. And Agrippa was trying to curry favour with the Jewish hierarchy, who had become the intractable enemies of this gathering of believers. Now, James and Peter had both been fishermen in Lake Galilee. They had each worked with their respective brothers, John and Andrew, and the four of them had been called to be the disciples of Jesus. At the beginning of his ministry. After the crucifixion and resurrection. James and Peter quickly became key participants in the early church. And needless to say. They became the focus of the hostility. That ranged itself against the church. As it had been following the leading of the spirit. James had been arrested. And quickly beheaded. And he became the first of the twelve disciples to be martyred. Now, this must have had a sobering effect. Upon the remaining disciples, as they had remained in Jerusalem in the face of the earlier persecutions, which had driven many others to move away and to put themselves out of reach of the Jewish authorities. Over time, so many moved out of Jerusalem that it left the church there somewhat impoverished, and the remaining Christians were persistently subjected to being imprisoned, having their goods confiscated, and were deprived of the opportunity to make a living. This was why Paul and others were constantly making collections of money in support of the church in Jerusalem. A theme that appears in several of his letters. Soon after James's death, Peter was also arrested. And it soon became clear that it was Agrippa's intention that he too would face a kangaroo court and would probably end up being executed just as had happened to James. Meanwhile, the church was praying that this plan would be thwarted. And the next thing we are told is that Peter woke up and became aware of a presence in his prison cell that he took to be an angel. And bidden by the angel... To leave the cell, he discovered that the prison guards were all asleep. And when he attempted to rise to his feet, his chains fell from his arms and legs. And the normally locked and bolted gates and doors all opened without any external help in order to enable him to escape. And touchingly, the text tells us that Peter thought he might be dreaming. Who wouldn't be? However, having escaped to the street outside, the angel disappeared and left him to find his own way back to the believers. And so the second part of our story begins. Peter arrives at the house described as that of Mary, the mother of John Mark, who happened to be hosting a prayer meeting for him. Now John Mark, you will recall, was the author of Mark's gospel, as well as the companion of Paul and Barnabas, over whom they were to fall out in the following chapter. And Peter knocked on the door, and Rhoda, a servant girl, Here's Peter knocking and calling from the front door. Rhoda. Rhoda was a Greek name and it could mean a rose. Or it may mean from Rhodes, the large Greek island just off the coast of Turkey which Acts tells us Paul later visited in about 57-56 AD. And Rhoda's description as a servant girl or a maid doesn't tell us whether she was a slave or an employee. However, we can conclude that Mary was a woman of substance. Now, Rhoda must have been a bit dippy. Have you ever got that feeling? As she recognised Peter by his voice, but got so excited that rather than opening the door to him, she ran inside to tell the people in the prayer meeting that he was outside. Maybe opening the front door was a task that was beyond her pay grade. I don't know. And so Peter, who couldn't be kept in prison by four burly prison guards, was prevented from entering Mary's house by a single dippy servant girl. (laughs) Yes. Slavery was an everyday fact of life. Back in the Roman Empire, there were approximately 28 million of them. Huge number. It was only just short of half of the population. The huge number of slaves meant that the Roman authorities were in constant fear of slave revolts, of which there were many. And perhaps the most famous one involved a slave called Spartacus, who, in the minds of most of us, bear a striking resemblance to Kirk Douglas. And although there is nothing in the Bible that explicitly condemns slavery, Some scholars believe that it was a significant issue in the early church. Slaves frequently were appointed as bishops or deacons, and a few churches consisted entirely of slaves, although it must have been tricky arranging meetings. Some churches collected funds together, with which they purchased the freedom of slaves. And then slave owners who were converted were encouraged to set their slaves free, or at least change their status to that of paid servants. And some scholars believe that that was what Paul was attempting to do when he wrote his letter to Philemon concerning the runaway slave Onesimus. Now, the idea of campaigning for the abolition of slavery couldn't have made much sense in the first century, as the autocratic and arbitrary political structure of the Roman state would have made it rather pointless. Our modern tendency to campaign for or against various causes in the name of humanity is a consequence of our democratic form of government, not to mention our long Christian heritage. When Rhoda appeared and announced that Peter was at the door, she wasn't believed. And that was in spite of the fact that Peter's release from prison was the very thing they were praying for. What were they expecting to happen? If Peter was released from prison, where did they expect him to go? It is surprising, isn't it? That we frequently call for prayer for this person or that. And we often call on God to intervene or to heal or to do a miracle or to change a difficult circumstance. But then we're surprised when a miracle actually does happen. What does that say about our faith? Does that not indicate that our faith is not always as strong as we would like it to be? Hmm. We are told that our believing is an important ingredient in whether or not our prayers are answered. We pray and we want our prayers answered. So we shut our eyes and we try to will ourselves into believing that God will answer our prayers but we can't drum up faith by willpower it just doesn't work like that our faith is a faith in god it's not a faith in faith have you heard people saying this You're, we have got to have faith no. it's not a faith in faith it's a faith in god It's not willpower, and it cannot be summoned up by willpower. When God works, he works according to his own timetable. God will do what he will do when he will do it. And his love motivates his actions. And his desire is for our well-being. And that will mean that he is always ready to intervene. And he would always do what's right. We, for our part, are invited to share in that life. And so he asks us to share our needs and our troubles with him. Not... As part of some great answering machine, nor as a means of reminding him, as if he ever forgot anything. But rather as part of our relationship with him. It does seem to me that God holds back from answering our prayers until the last possible moment. Have you noticed that? It's a just-in-time policy, a bit like Tesco's. All the big supermarkets have very little storage space, which isn't part of the sales floor. And the way they work is that the big delivery lorries, there's a big delivery lorry coming up any second now. The big delivery lorries that are constantly arriving to restock the shop are time to arrive just as the last ...of the previous stock is being taken from the shelf by the customer. And the delivery is described as just in time. This way of working is causing some heartache as we prepare for Brexit. Now, something similar is going on with regards to our prayers, believe it or not. Not, I hasten to add, because God lacks storage space... But because if an answer to prayer didn't occur at the last minute, just in time, we would never notice. We wouldn't even realise that God was at work. Because we're a bit thick like that. Now, here's a conundrum. And many theologians have wrestled with this one for centuries So don't think you can come up with a quick, easy answer. Both Peter and James were in prison. But Peter was miraculously released and James was beheaded. Repeatedly, we hear people who are miraculously delivered from some circumstance and yet others in similar circumstances are not. And this is often expressed as a criticism. Of a capricious God who tends to save some and condemn others in an arbitrary manner. Who does this God think he is? Playing God with our lives. We don't have an answer to the question of why Peter and not James. And we don't have an answer for anyone else with a similar comparison. And it's probably futile to try and look for one. However, we are called to learn to trust God. We don't really have a choice. We can either trust God willingly, especially at those moments when we don't understand quite what's going on, or we can fume and argue with God because he has had the temerity to do something that was different from what we wanted or expected. We do have a temptation to imagine that if one person receives better treatment from God than another, then it's an indication of their relative standing before God. In other words, it indicates how holy or sinless they are. The idea of sinless perfection was achievable, was very popular when I was young, but less so today. But the idea itself is flawed. Jesus shows this in his answer to the question, who sinned in John's Gospel? This man, who was born blind, or his parents, who bore him? If it was the man who bore, was born blind who had sinned, then were his parents not burdened unnecessarily? If, on the other hand, the blindness was a punishment for the parents, then the man who was born blind, that was a bit unfair on him, wasn't it? This is why all the kids were shouting, unfair. Unfair. Jesus' answer makes it clear that good things, or indeed bad things, don't happen because we deserve them. They happen for God's own inscrutable reasons. Some of which will become apparent to us, and some of which may not. This, of course, doesn't discount those occasions when cause and effect comes into play. If you step out into the road without looking, you will more than likely as not get run down by an oncoming vehicle. Just cause and effect. Although I once knew a lady called Joyce. She was partially sighted. And she carried a white stick. And she used to tell me that in order to cross a road, she would just pray and hold her stick aloft and walk purposefully across the road. She was never hit by anything in any of the time I knew her. If you leap off a high building, you will undoubtedly hit the ground at a speed approaching 120 miles per hour. But there are exceptions. This lady, Victoria Killiers, did survive a 4,000 foot drop out of an aeroplane just a couple of years ago. You may remember it, it was in the news. Because both her main and her emergency parachutes failed to open. She did land in a ploughed field but her husband is currently in prison for her attempted murder. It appears the the people praying didn't know, didn't think Rhoda was important enough to listen to her. Did you get that from the story? Was she too dippy to be believed? Was it because she was female? Was it because she was a servant? Was she because she had foreign blood? The wrong coloured skin? We can put forward a whole range of reasons to avoid treating other human beings with warmth and love. Just because they are different from us. And often in ways they can do nothing about. And there's a word for this. It's called prejudice. In the Roman world, many of the people in slavery had been forced to move against their will, far from their family, friends and loved ones, often by force and without regards to their health or their well-being. As often as not, The slaves had become slaves just because they happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Just as a Roman army was passing by. They were the spoils of war. They had often seen their loved ones raped and murdered just before they were carried off by a victorious army. They had often been beaten to within an inch of their lives and had themselves been raped, abused, and treated abysmally. It had been pure chance as to whether or not they had been purchased by a cruel master or a kindly one. And they would never have known if today would be their last, because there was no law against murdering slaves. Today, largely on account of our long Christian heritage, we are very aware of our inhumanity to our fellow man. And most forms of human abuse are illegal. Not that that stops it happening. Regular stories emerge in the press of children and sometimes adults being kidnapped and enslaved, some of them reappearing following a chance discovery after 20 or more years of a sex slave hell. And despite our historic distaste for it, slavery in the UK is a growing problem. A recent government report has highlighted the fact that there are child abuse or sex slave gangs in almost every one of our major cities and larger towns. That's quite scary, isn't it, really? Those of Rochdale, Rotherham and Newcastle have become high-profile court cases in recent days, but they, we are assured, are only the tip of the iceberg. From time to time... Domestic slave workers are being found and released from their captivity after being brought into the country by well-to-do foreign families. Some of our worker gangs in various menial menial labouring jobs are effectively slaves, being paid little or nothing apart from some squalid accommodation Having been rescued from their home country, having been recruited, sorry, having been recruited from their home countries with false promises of paid work, we owe it to them to enable their release whenever possible, although most of us will be able to do very little other than report our suspicions to the local police. But these are real people for whom Christ died. And we have a divine responsibility to proclaim liberty to the captives. It's easy for us to underestimate the value of a person because of their perceived status or standing in society. It's easy to ignore an important message Or a bit of information simply because it is delivered by someone whom we do not value. It's easy to pray for a specific outcome and yet still be surprised when God does just what we ask. These are the temptations that the Christians face. Precisely because they have a walk with God. When Jesus came... He broke the power of sin, not just the external sin that sits all around us, but the internal sin that we are barely aware of, deep within our being. When Jesus was just beginning his ministry, he quoted Isaiah at an event in his local synagogue in Nazareth. God has chosen me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovery of sight to the blind. To set free the oppressed and to announce that the time has come when the Lord will save his people.
0: Amen.